So just a quick programming note up top here. There has been a verdict in the Chauvin trial, guilty on all charges, and we're at work on an episode to analyze the verdict, the response, and what comes next. But we're bringing you this episode now that we had in the works on the closing arguments. We will have that new episode with three great guests on Wednesday, and we hope you will download and listen then. But for now, we did want to make sure this episode went out because we think it also has a lot of important points about this case. You're listening to Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Law. I'm Adam Allington. With me here to discuss closing arguments in the nation's most intensely watched police brutality trial since Rodney King is Cami Chavis. She's a professor of law and director of the criminal justice program at Wake Forest University School of Law. Professor Chavis, welcome to Uncommon Law. Great. Thank you for having me. So in my mind, the key theme in this trial from the prosecution was asking jurors to basically believe your eyes. And on the other side, the defense was warning them to consider other factors that were not shown on the video. So what was your assessment of their closing statements? So, you know, what I think is interesting is the the prosecution, and it was it was no surprise to me, but I thought it was very effective that the prosecution opened the arguments with simply his name. His name was George Perry Floyd Jr. And he was born on October 14, 1973, in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And then began, you know, with his pictures of his mother and pictures of him at school. And this is something, um, it's, it seems so small, but really just to humanize George Floyd. And, and we don't often see that uh, when we have uh, victims of police violence. Um, the, the goal um, from the other side is really to, to, to demonize that person um, in, in some way. And so we really saw, of course, from the prosecution, that element of, of humanity. Uh, and then uh, from, from the uh, defense side, uh, of course, um, their you know, various theories of the case um, really hinged upon um, not that that humanity, but thinking about um, the the negative things about um, imperfections in his body that would have caused his death rather than this officer's knee on his neck. That definitely seemed to be the strategy of defense attorney Eric Nelson, telling jurors that there were a number of factors that could have all played a role in George Floyd's death which make it impossible to meet the standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. They're trying to convince you beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Floyd's heart disease played no role in this case, that Mr. Floyd's history of hypertension played absolutely no role in the cause of Mr. Floyd's death. The state must convince you beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Floyd's toxicology played no role role in his death. If a person has drugs in their system and that drug causes an overdose in the context of the police restraint, it's not the natural consequence of the restraint. It's the natural consequence of the deceased's actions. Nelson said it was, quote, incredible how much the state's medical experts ignored the effects of drugs in Floyd's system. Did you agree with that approach? 
The problem with that theory is that um, he was walking, talking, and just fine uh, for many years before uh, the the incident that day. And all the the prosecution, again, uh, one of the important things was to say that Chauvin's knee on his neck was a substantial factor. And so that is why that theory to me, uh, it, it doesn't work. But as a defense attorney, he had to raise it. You know, look, I, I think that the facts of this particular case were so egregious. This was, and Eric Nelson, as a defense attorney, you know, he has a duty to his client to give him a zealous defense. So, you know, as a, as a law professor and, and you know, teaching uh, law students, and I've also you know, taught the, the ethics, ethics class, you have to give your client um, the best possible defense. And that's what he was trying to do. And that's why we saw just this kind of hodgepodge of theories that to many people, and again, I've been you know doing this work for, for many years, that, that just didn't make um, a lot of sense. When you, as a prosecutor, you have to prove every element beyond a reasonable doubt, and the burden is on the prosecution. So the defense doesn't have to put on uh, a, a defense, and um, their, their goal here would be to uh, focus in um, and create that reasonable doubt. So anything that the defense had uh, at their disposal to create reasonable doubt was, was fair game. At one point, Nelson also asked Judge Peter Cahill to declare a mistrial over comments state prosecutor Jerry Blackwell made that the defense was trying to create, quote, stories or shade the truth, and that this amounted to prosecutorial misconduct. You know, my again, my my objection, my my thought is that again, he's trying to be an advocate for his his client. I think that is a bit of a bridge too far because you know, again, when you're accusing another uh, officer of the court of some type of misconduct, um, again, that's not really founded. Uh, I, I think that that crosses the line uh, for me. So uh, I did not think that 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 was uh, appropriate and and the judge uh, ruled against it. And he, you know, he also his his job again um is to create a record for appeal. And and so, you know, if he didn't have any objections or didn't pose uh any of that, then uh you, you know, you might be looking at like an ineffective assistance of of counsel <laughs> claim uh on, on on appeal for for Chauvin. So this is this is our legal system, this is our adversary system uh at work. Um unfortunately it it does not always uh work to achieve justice for victims of police violence. Um but um who knows, perhaps this this case uh, will be different. The phrase proof beyond a reasonable doubt came up a lot in this trial, especially during closing arguments. And I think people hear that in their head and they sort of think that it means, you know, more likely than not, which is not the standard here. It's actually much higher. So can you just talk about what beyond a reasonable doubt means in a criminal case? Yes. So when we look at all of these different standards and and burdens, 
you can kind of look at them along a spectrum. And of course, in civil cases, you have you know, preponderance of the evidence. And that's kind of, you know, that's the standard that you need. But in criminal cases, the standard is higher than that. So that gives us a, a bit of a benchmark um, to think about where this uh, beyond a reasonable doubt uh, standard uh, lays. And it should be high. It's a very high standard, but it should be high. Anytime that we're talking about, um, you know, a, a, a loss of, of liberty, we want the standard to be high, which is why I think it's not a foregone conclusion. Me, after having watched this case, after having watched the trial, I think the prosecution put on a very good case. They had a very, um, the defense had very bad facts. Um, the I think the case was appropriately charged. I don't think it was overcharged. Um, and I think the prosecution, they had witness after witness and expert after expert, and um, they uh, put on a very strong case. But um, when you think about beyond a reasonable doubt, just, you know, a, a little bit of uh, skepticism on the part of one juror, you know, could, could, hang this jury, as we say, and then um, we need to, you'd have to go back and decide if you wanted to, to retry uh, Chauvin. Professor Chavis, any other parting thoughts either about the trial itself or maybe how it might factor into the discussions in some of your classes going forward? There's a bit of a debate of the role that the video evidence played here. And, you know, in uh, actually in, in my classes now, I don't show the just gratuitous violence towards black bodies um, that that we've seen. I think it's important. And of course, um, as a prosecutor, you need to show that. You need to make sure that the jury sees that. But there's also an emotional aspect to that. Now, as a professor in my class, I no longer show just gratuitously, um, the you know violence towards black bodies. I, I, I teach a class on on policing, and if it, if there's a pedagogical reason that we need to see, um, you know, was this excessive force? Then we we may view it. We typically view it outside of class, um, or because it can be triggering for for some folks, uh, or we'll view it in a, with a with a warning, that kind of thing. Um, but here in in the, the this space, that can be very effective, uh, you know, for you know making the prosecution's case. And so I expected them to use it in in a way to show the the violence, but. I, I think that the defense's uh, use of the video um, at times was a bit ineffective. I didn't understand. Uh, you know, I would have avoided <laughs> the the use of, of that video. And I think he used it at, at times to try to make points um, that really were not helpful. Um, that, oh, his, you know, the officer's foot really wasn't um, off of the ground. Well, we could still see the knee on the neck. So um, I'm not sure how effective that was. As we all know, George Floyd's death set off a wave of protests and fresh calls from activists to reform police departments. But it seemed like the prosecution tried to distance themselves from any kind of broad criticism of the police, instead focusing jurors' attention on Mr. Chauvin alone. This is not an anti-police prosecution, Prosecutor Steve Slisher said at one point. Yes. So, well, one one of the things that I think is particularly interesting about this case, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this point, is that 
you know, this, this, this trial, it, it is significant. It's almost, you know, the trial of a century, but it is that because it is so egregious. The, the behavior, the, the length of time that Chauvin was, you know, was cutting off the, the oxygen really for George Floyd, the reason that the officers were at the location in the first place. This was not a kidnapping or a murder. This was an alleged passing of a $20 counterfeit bill. And so it's just, it's so, it's so sensitive. But I am always emphasizing to students that that this case um, itself is really not the greatest poster child for what to do with policing in America because it's, you know, unlike some of these other cases where you have rapidly unfolding events, you was the suspect armed, were they not armed? This was not that case. Um, you know, officers always say, oh, I was in this rapidly unfolding situation. I feared for my life. And then it just, you know, justified and, and, and you move on. And that is the behavior that we all, that's really very common and that we need to um, address. And that is where we will leave the discussion for now. Cami Chavis is a professor of law and director of the criminal justice program at Wake Forest University School of Law. Professor, thanks again for speaking with me. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Uncommon Law was produced by myself, Adam Allington, along with Marissa Horn. Josh Block is the executive producer of Bloomberg Industry Group Podcasts. Thanks for listening. My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you Everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is, is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Breyer watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel. But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224th of it, Citing the Passchendaele battle is one of the largest battles of World War One. Um, that seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.